What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 121. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am the incredibly healthy Matt McAlottis. Oh, it must be nice. We are the Story Men, and also right over at NorvalRogers.com. Today, we are excited to talk to the one and only Andy Crouch, a brilliant author and thinker and speaker who has been with us before. Andy has a new book out, which we will be interviewing him about well most of us will uh we are getting the interview was long because andy is awesome and we wanted to talk to him a bunch so we're gonna dive straight in straight <laughs> straight in mike we're gonna draw straight into a pop culture pick of the week Pa-pow! Pa-pow! Pa-pow. clay what's your pop culture pick this week <laughs> can i say vicodin all right um mine is a book called Off to Be the Wizard by Scott Meyer. And it is my favorite read of the year. It's my favorite read since Ready Player One uh, about a year ago. And it is absolutely incredible. I did the Audible version. The This book and its follow-up sequel have over 5,000 reviews, and they're rocking a 4.5% or more. And... Um, Four and, four and a half star stars? or more, and uh, <laughs> it's four and a half percent. You guys, it's, it's really so good. Bad. It's so good. It's like it's like humor meets the Matrix meets Ready Player One. It's just basically this uh, hacker finds out that all of human existence is a computer code, and the people who are wizards back in the Middle Ages um, are basically the people who have discovered the code. So really funny, really clever. Some of the best. Um, I mean, good character development, but like every single nugget in the story pays off. Every little thing is planted so perfectly, and you get to the second half of the book, and you're just like loving it. It's so great. Off to be the wizard. Do they explain why if you figure out how to hack everything, you would choose willingly to live in the Middle Ages? They totally do. It's a huge part of the story. Okay, and good, as a matter of fact, and the follow up. I would never. Well, read, if uh, you read have that. the powers to manipulate reality, that would appear to be supernatural. So you look at the history of the world. Which culture has accepted supernatural without burning you at the stake, for example? Ours? So, not in the 1700s. No, ours now? Well, if you manipulate... What's the first thing you would do if you could manipulate entire reality? Maybe change your bank Not account? live in the Middle Ages? Make yourself wealthy? See what would happen? Uh, teleport? I don't know. Well, if in, you're just... Indoor plumbing? It's, uh, I will say this. You will not be disappointed at the thought process of how okay. the average person who finds it. I, I don't right, know why I'm going re- to read it. reading it. I'm going to read it, too. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. All right. You, you've convinced me. All right. What's yours, Matt? Okay, mine is called Barsk. B-A-R... The Elephant's Graveyard. It's B- like... B-A-R-S-K? Shown. Yep. It's the name of a planet. And it's... Uh, it's way way in the future 50,000 years in the future or something and uh it's about a uh all the mammals or many of the mammals on earth were uplifted to be sentient the whole deal and there's a society basically of anthropomorphized anthropomorphized uh the elephants for whatever reason people hate them and they all have their own kind of backwater planet and Another piece of the story is actually about the elephants. Well, they're not called elephants. They're called fence. They have a hug that allows certain people who have the gift to speak to uh, the recently deceased, basically to gather sort of the memories of those people and create their personality again. Uh, And it all 
technical and other fallout uh, as the rest of the galaxy is trying to get better access to a purer version of this drug. And it's spectacular. It's really interesting. It's funny. It's about outsiders and, uh, you know, memory, language, loss, all these things. Uh, It's really well written. You know why you have to be careful about how mean you are to an elephant? Because elephants never forget. Yeah, they have long memories. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> is that a punchline? Exactly. Um, That's really true. Mine is the new Hulu series, 11-22-63, which is... is oh, that the Hulu. wrong date? I thought you were talking about that t- Cthulhu no, Hulu. Oh. The I was Netflix, like, I didn't know it was behind the, that the Netflix for JFK TV series. Um, Eleven twenty two sixty three. It is the Hulu eight part miniseries adaptation of the Stephen King novel, which I'm nearly certain has been a papal before for me. Uh, it is about a guy who finds a portal into the past, and he decides he's going to stop the JFK assassination. And the trick of the portal is that every time you go through it, everything resets. So it always takes you back to the exact same day and time and place every time. So if you go back into the future... You're not spoiling anything, right? No, no, that's like in the very first, yeah. yeah. So it's like, if you go back and do something, and then come back out of the portal, immediate, like, and then you go back into the portal, everything you did back there has been reset. So when he first finds it, a, a guy who runs a diner has been going back and forth and buying his beef that he uses that he serves at his diner at 1960s prices hmm. and coming forward so he's famous for having these dollar hamburgers hmm. and no one can figure out how he serves such good hamburgers for only a dollar and that's like that's kind of how they reveal it the other interesting thing that king does is that time is change resistant and so the bigger the changes you try to make the harder time pushes back on you and obviously trying to stop the jfk assassination is considered a pretty big change hmm. so it gets a little weird. It gets a little supernatural, even beyond the time travel element. And the fun part about it is the date and time are 1960. Kennedy's not killed until 63. So the main character actually has to live in the past oh, okay. for several years to get to. Very interesting. Yeah. So I'm uh, super excited to watch that. Yeah. I, I never read the book. I've only watched an episode so far. Three are out so far. And so I've got some catching up to do. But the book is amazing. And so far, the series is good. It stars James, Frank, James Franco, and he does a good job. I was going to say, I didn't know you started watching this without me. Uh, so is it- you were around last week when I watched it. That's not fair. That's not fair. Is it is it holding up with the book, Jerry? Well, I read the book and enjoyed it. Do you feel like it's... Yeah, I mean, again, the book is very deep King mythology. It ties into it, the, the book with the killer clown, pretty extensively. Hmm. And, and in the book, the portal takes him back to 1950. So he actually has to live in the past for 13 years. Hmm. And they, like, obviously to do an eight-part, 45-ish minute miniseries, hmm. they have to trim everything down pretty substantially so uh yeah i mean given all of the constraints of it i'm enjoying it quite a lot and it's it's fun since clay and i live in dallas uh he's already been to dallas and they're showing some of the 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 places around dallas that we've been and that's always kind of fun when he when franco was here i follow him on instagram and he was posting selfies of him in the dallas skyline and it's just kind of cool to see you know that happening in your city so question and this will our listeners will be interested is this a book that i should really read before i watch the series I I would I always recommend doing that. Yes, but I will give you a couple of caveats. One, if you're going to read 112263, you really should go ahead and read it because it sets up a lot of what happens in 112263. It's not required, Matt. Have you read it? 
I've not. And actually, I knew I, I there were a couple moments that I was like, oh, those are probably characters from it. Like there are some kids dancing at one point. Yeah. But the, uh, but literally it didn't like there was never a place I was like, oh, that's a I don't understand. Like I knew there's a really I don't want to give any spoilers. There's a super creepy thing uh, that happens uh, at one point that I assumed was a crossover. But it was compelling in the book itself, so yeah. I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't distracted by not having read it. Although, as far I have, as I know, I have seen the it movie like five uh, times, so I know the characters at least. Yeah, and again, you don't have to. Obviously, I love King. It is a tremendous novel, and it's worth reading on its own. But those two novels together are over a thousand pages long, and so if you don't want to read a thousand pages before you dive into this miniseries, I think you could enjoy it on its own. And if you f- you watch it and you enjoy it, it probably will make you want to go back and read the novel. And they're different enough okay. that I think you'll find that the the series won't spoil the novel for you. Well, maybe I'll have to hop off the Scott Meyer train and do a quick audible version of eleven twenty two sixty. Yeah, it's pretty quick. It's only like eight hundred pages, so awesome. Breeze through it in no time. Awesome picks. Well, I was sad that I didn't get to uh, join you guys for this interview with Andy Crouch. I can't wait to listen to it because the episode hasn't even aired yet, as we are just finishing recording this intro. Yeah, um, we had Andy back. Uh, he he was on the show when his uh, incredible book, Playing God, came out. Uh, Str- uh, Strong and Weak is really, in many ways, a spiritual successor to that book, and Andy will talk about that in the interview. Uh, Andy's an awesome, awesome, awesome person. He's an incredible guest for the story, man. We can't wait to have him back. But he is the executive editor at Christianity Today. He serves on the governing board at Fuller Theological Seminary and several other institutions. Uh, Matt, you had him out to your crew conference uh, last year. Yeah. Yeah. And he knocked the ball out of the park. Uh, he was amazing. Everyone loved him. Well, I think everyone. Everyone <laughs> I spoke to did. Um, yeah. He's a, he's a really generous kind and uh just really wonderful person like he's he's so smart but you hang out with him and he is thinking about others compassionate like i think it's a pretty rare combination i really enjoy him he's a great guy yeah and you'll hear that again in the interview if you haven't listened to our episode with him where we talked about playing god you should absolutely go back and listen to that but you're in for a real treat uh this interview is fantastic we did miss clay uh, but he is obviously back in the land of the living, alive and kicking. So uh, let's dive into our interview with Andy. We're here with Andy Crouch. Andy, welcome back to the Storyman. I am so glad to be back. It's been too long, guys. I, I know. We promised that we would be back together, and then uh, it didn't happen until now. I know. You actually said that in our last time together. Do I do I have to have another book come out to be on the show? And we said no. <laughs> Apparently, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do better next time, we promise. Uh, but you do have a new book out, and it's it's incredible. It's called Strong and Weak. I'm holding it up, but our audio listeners can't see it. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's so cool. And so I guess I want to start by asking – like, how did this book come into your brain? Like, where, what was the, was there like a moment or was there an incident or an idea that just sort of grew to become this dichotomy that you break apart? Well, what happened is I was speaking a lot about my book, Playing God, which we talked about last time. And I stumbled on this way to present a key idea in Playing God. So the idea actually was already in that earlier book. But I came up with a way of uh, framing it that is visual 
And so that'll be great for a podcast. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was having the same concern. How are we going to do the grin? Um, but, and I realized this simple way of describing what we'll talk about, this idea of authority and vulnerability, is on its own so helpful that it deserves more time. And I just was kicking myself that I didn't have this simple way of presenting what in playing God is sort of a complex idea. Um, and then my editor, Andy LePoe at University Press said, you know, do you have a, like a little book you want to write, you know, before we dig into some massive new book? Like, is there just something you wish you had said more? And I said, oh my gosh, there totally is. There's this thing that I've been presenting to people and it's the most helpful thing I've, I've ever come up with, but it, it didn't get into the previous book. So we made this little book, Strong and Weak, about it. So the, this brilliant idea, and I, I mean that it is, it's incredible, This is this two-by-two two grid, and so that's it, you just sort of, by presenting this idea over and over and teaching it again and again and again and interacting, yeah. answering questions, it just sort of emerged it, over that, that it time? It emerged like three months after the book Playing God came out, I'm like, oh, this book would have been so much more helpful if I had that grit in it. But well, and, and I, it, this book does feel, and I, I mean this like in the best possible way, it does feel like like bonus content to Playing God. <laughs> it is. In it, a great way. Like it's in a, it's a, or like a spiritual sequel almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, that's exactly it right. By itself, for sure, though. Like you don't need to read Playing God to understand this book. Not at all. Yeah, I'm sure it's wonderful to read them both together, though. I mean, and you I'm not should read them. Discouraging you from the previous, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's not like a sequel where you're lost if you pick it up. It's by itself, it's an incredibly helpful book. Uh, okay, I'm gonna take a run at this at this grid thing, yeah. and then and then and then help me help me fix my my fumbling. So okay, for those that listening at home, Jr. is now drawing on a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, uh, if it's okay with you, Andy, we'll maybe do a little. Uh, clip uh, and just put the the initial grid in the screen and the show oh, notes. Oh, that's a great idea. Uh, so people can go there and see it if they want. Uh, you, I actually, you, it's really my daughter uh, drew it on the whiteboard that is behind my head, unfortunately. So I'll move my head out of the way so at least you guys can see. <laughs> so my, oh, beautiful. She actually drew it. It's so cool. She drew it just to show to a friend of hers. She like drew it on my whiteboard, then took a picture of it and sent it by text message to her friend. Uh, I was like, oh, this is going to work. If my 15-year-old is sharing it with other 15-year-olds, there's something here. So anyway. Well, it's, it's, yeah, so you basically take this dichotomy, you know, do, do we as humans need to be authoritative or vulnerable, you know, strong yeah. or weak? And, and you, you say, you know, we always think of this on a spectrum. It's like one end or the other or somewhere in the middle or something like that. And you blow that apart and say, quit, you know, quit thinking one-dimensionally, start thinking two-dimensionally, and that th these are not... Um, these are not two ends of a spectrum, but they're two different ideas that need to be put together. And we we have like a four by four quadrant. And so when you graphed it out like that and said, it, it's not that we need to be either strong or weak, either authoritative or vulnerable. We need to be both of these at the same time. Yep. And and then you started you started going through the different quadrants and saying you know if you're strong and not weak it's this if you're weak but not strong it's this if you're neither it's you know so I found your axis, JR, what's the horizontal and what's the vertical line there so one's authority and one's vulnerability vulnerability right yeah so right. which is which which way do we go w what do you mean does it I mean. I don't know that it matters, but Andy, do you put the yeah. which one do you put on the horizontal a, and which on the vertical? I put authority on the vertical, so higher low authority is up or down, and then vulnerability on the horizontal, 
uh, low vulnerability would be over to the left, high vulnerability over, over to the right. So the two together, author high authority, high vulnerability, is up and to the right in the uh, chart. And then that's language used throughout the book. We're, all, we're constantly yeah. trying to move up and to the right, up and right. to the right, up and to the right. Um, can I found the way you use the parenting metaphor particularly uh, helpful to understand this. Would you mind walking us through that? Oh, yeah. Well, see, so the interesting thing, um, and this is kind of backstory or, or whatever that didn't really fit in the book uh, at length, but you can actually take this two-by-two two model, and it ends up applying to many things, and I think in a way they all end up being about authority and vulnerability, but one of the really interesting examples of this uh, of two things that we think might be opposites but actually have to go together comes from uh, this literature on what's called parenting style. And it started in the 1970s with this psychologist named Diana Balmerand, and she started studying what, kind, what sort of approaches to parenting led to children flourishing, uh, you know, doing well in school, showing self-control, showing, showing initiative, showing confidence, all those kind of things. And she discovered you have to have two things together that often parents don't put together. And in the book, at least, I call these firmness, or you could say strictness, on the one hand, and warmth. So you've got, on the one hand, the um, firmness that parents have to bring of setting boundaries, setting expectations, creating consequences and accountability. Uh, but then on the other hand, parents have to be emotionally available, emotionally open, create a setting of acceptance. And it's amazing how often in our own parenting, we sort of fall onto one, we, we treat those as if they're opposites, and we fall onto one end or the other. So you, you have parents who are very strict, but they're not very open or warm. And then you have parents who are super warm, but they just don't set many boundaries. And Baumann's great sort of insight was you have to have these together. And so it's a two by two. It's not linear. It's not one or the other. It's both. And if you have one without the other, Firmness without warmth would be authoritarian uh, kind of parenting, like just, you know, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. <laughs> um, warmth without firmness is indulgent parenting. And then another insight when you map it two by two is you realize there's a third way to mess up as a parent. <laughs> uh, there are three ways to be a bad parent, and, and the third is to have neither. And in the book, at least, I call that absent parenting. Um, but only when you're up and to the right, if you map it out that way, when you have both, uh, this is demonstrated very well attested now, at least for dominant culture Western parents. It's a little bit of controversy about whether this applies everywhere all the time. Um, but it's only when you have both firmness and warmth that you get the best outcomes in terms of children's lives and development. Um, and so I use that to just set up to help us realize there's a lot of places in life where we think we have two alternatives. Uh, Jim Collins calls it the tyranny of the or. We think it's this or this, but it's it's not necessarily this or this. And a lot of creative life and leadership is finding ways to hold together two things that don't seem like they can go together. So I think for some people, maybe the idea that the quadrant we should be shooting for is authority and vulnerability uh -huh. is probably foreign and possibly yeah. not just counterintuitive, but like sounds crazy. So can can you tell us a little bit about why authority and vulnerability? I think most of us are, well, not most, maybe many people probably find it strange to be targeting getting both of those things. And do you think there's one that we're more, that, 
as you imagine how people might resist that idea, which one do you think they're more uncomfortable with? Because I'm not sure which one you may be thinking of. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think certainly if you look at the American political system, we'd be told <laughs> that we're seeking authority only. Yes. Uh, like the GOP last night. We I don't oh know gosh. if anyone watched the debate. I tried to avoid it. But the uh, idea there, right, was to show only strength, that yes. I don't have weakness, and your opponent's yeah. trying to show that you are vulnerable. And then you yes. say, well, that's because you're an idiot. <laughs> uh, I would say also, too, I, you know, I've had uh, a few different um, leaders in the – so I'm a pastor, and I have had yeah. other pastors that I've served under who have warned me not to be vulnerable as a pastor. Wow. Yes. Not not in the form of not having friendships in the congregation. Right. That opens I, I hear that from pastors all the time. They're not allowed to be friends with their right. congregants because they might realize that you're not that you're a human being. I guess Jr. Is that what they're telling you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they would say it that way because they know that the the right church answer is well, even pastors are not perfect. I mean, that's like a mantra that we say from the pulpit, even <laughs> mostly um, perfect. But. <laughs> I think it's it's it is it is really this idea of vulnerability that the pastor, yeah. even though we say the pastor is a person just like everyone else, we don't act that way. We act as right. though they have the red phone in their in their office that goes straight to heaven, and uh, they have uh, <laughs> because of the unique access they have to God, they are held at a higher standard and they're put on a higher level, and they're not. If you let people in, yes, then you will seem more human than a pastor should. Wow. So I, I think you're totally right that there are many settings in which what communities want from their leaders is authority without vulnerability. Uh, certainly this seems to be what the GOP primary electorate at this moment is asking for. And really, in a way, always in American life, doesn't matter the party. I think the two parties just promise different kinds of authority and promise to reduce different kinds of vulnerability in a way. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, I, I don't know if it said every single state of the union address, but I think the kind of stock beginning of every state of the union address is my fellow Americans, the state of our union is strong. strong. <laughs> <laughs> and the president never says the state of our union is strong and weak. <laughs> or, we're, yeah, we're not doing so well this year. You know, like it's always the state of our, why, why is that? That is not in fact the case. That's not actually truthful, but it's what communities want from their leaders. Now I actually think it's, so I was wondering when you set this up, Matt, whether uh, you were perceiving something that I think I've seen, which is that in reaction to this, um, I think a number of especially younger Americans, emerging adults, actually are very wary of pursuing authority and very suspicious oh. of anyone who pursues authority. So actually vulnerability is okay because we can trust that. Um, but can you trust someone who's actually pursuing authority? And I think that's a huge question. Um, and <laughs> the answer is you shouldn't trust them if they're pursuing authority without vulnerability. But, but here's how I um, would start to break open both of those um, false ways of thinking. I think about what healthy life and leadership is. And I would just say, if you think about the moment in your life when you were most flourishing, when you, there, I think for most of us, there might be some time in our life where we just think, oh, that was when I was so alive. I was kind of being everything I could be in that moment. I was deeply engaged. I will bet if you think about that, that 
two things will be true about that moment in your life. Uh, two things time to, it's almost four things. <laughs> but first of all, someone else at that moment, I am guessing, was taking authority in some way in your life. They actually were shaping the context and the environment that you were in with authority. And they were also taking a risk. And that's kind of part one. And then part two, you yourself at that moment were given some kind of authority. So, and, and I don't just mean like a position or a title. I mean capacity for meaningful action in that moment. You were given some role that mattered to play and you were taking a risk. I, I just think it's the case that the best times in our lives are when we have both and when someone else has both. Uh, it's always connected to other people exercising authority and vulnerability as well. Can, can you give us a concrete example uh, of this in your life or a story you know? Uh, yeah, great. for sure. Um, I will say as a parent, I think this is massively the case. So uh, parenting is certainly one of the things we're meant to do. Uh, and all of us have a role in it, even if we're not parents, caring for children. And when you're in a relationship with a child, you have lots of authority by virtue of your size, <laughs> by virtue of your greater experience. Uh, but, but to really love a child is an unbelievably vulnerable thing. And yet I would, I think about taking, to be more specific, taking my eight year old son, then eight year old, he's now 18. Uh, I took him on a film shoot that we did uh, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia about first nations in Canada and the way that the first nations had been, terribly exploited and abused in Canada. So this is a very heavy topic. We're flying all the way across the country to do this film shoot. I'm like, I think I could bring Timothy along. Uh, so that's an act of authority, like you know, drag your kid along. <laughs> What's right. he got to do, say no? Um, <laughs> but it was really vulnerable because I knew, you know, the nature of documentary film shooting is just long days. A lot of it is very boring. There's a lot of setup. There's a lot of teardown. There's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of being very quiet while cameras are rolling. And I really didn't know what he would experience. It ended up being, I think, my son's first transformative spiritual experience of the power of God, because we were with people who were confronting this legacy of injustice in the name of the kingdom of God and seeing reconciliation. And it, it, cha it changed his life in a significant way. And it was just one of the most amazing father-son things we ever got to do. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, a different example where I was kind of on the receiving end was the most important teacher I've ever had was my ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Nardiello. And I landed in this new high school for ninth grade, and I was this kind of math science oriented uh, middle schooler, actually. But I landed in this English class <laughs> with Mrs. Nardiello, and we read Shakespeare and whatever we read that year. And it, it just transformed my life. It opened me up to literature. It opened me up to language. It, she got me writing. She actually was the first teacher who ever gave me a C on a paper. <laughs> I think because she knew I could do better than I had done. I think it was actually not a, I don't know if it was a C paper, but she knew that for me, it was a C paper. Like mm. it was far short of what I could do. So that's a lot of authority. But the interesting thing about Mrs. Nardiello, which I didn't fully grasp at that moment in that, that year of English was that she was she actually had a degenerative um, disease that uh, the only way it showed up for us kids was her handwriting was very small because she couldn't control or, or I'm not sure exactly what was going on. There was something that made her unable to sort of write and use her hands in normal ways. But it, it was uh, 
eventually mortal, fatal. And she knew that. And she knew she was probably two years away from having to stop teaching. And a couple years after that class, she died of this disease. So here's this woman who just poured herself out to this group of ninth graders. And it wasn't just me. Like the whole class, it was this transformative experience because she came, even without us knowing it, with this tremendous vulnerability at the same time as she was pushing us and taking authority in our lives. That's like the, which it is, I mean, even in the way you set the grid up, it's the polar opposite of this withdrawing that yes. you warn us about. And you, you say that you're convinced that withdrawing is the most common issue that many of us as Americans face. Yes. Why do you say that? <laughs> so withdrawing is the choice to back away from authority and to back away from vulnerability, to back away from risk. And, you know, this isn't really an option for most people in the world. I mean, I I was with um, some church leaders, young church leaders in Haiti in May of last year and presented this grid uh, to them. And we talked about it. And we get to this corner that's the, you know, low in both, uh, down and to the left in the grid. And I'm like, well, this, you know, what would it be like to have no authority and no risk? And the room kind of burst out in laughter and they were like, nobody gets to live down there. Like who, you know, they walk out their front door in Haiti, you know, you just take one step outside and you're exposed to risk. You're vulnerable in various ways. And that's true. Even if you're even relatively powerful in that society. And so they were like, this is empty. Like there's no human being who gets to live there. I said, well, actually in the U S you can live here. So you can move into a gated community you can stay in your parents' basement, you know, you can just withdraw because affluence and privilege allow you to opt out of authority and vulnerability at the same time. And I just see this as a, I think this is one of the defining dynamics of my own life is not taking the risks I should take, not taking the authority I actually ought to take. And I see it as just massively an issue, uh, particularly in in younger, kind of uh, college students and young adults seem to me so often to be afraid of meaningful action and meaningful risk. So the idea here is that you kind of stick, you're in a decent place, you stick with the status quo, you don't try to do anything new, nothing to rock the boat. Exactly. Or you actually back away. I, I presented this to um, college students in a chapel uh, at Gordon College a couple of years ago. And we had, it was one of these nights where you cannot possibly orchestrate these things, but sometimes God just comes into a room and people are open and respond. And, and the way, the invitation we gave to them for prayer was, you know, find where you are in these three corners where you're we're really not supposed to live. And let's pray about that. And the overwhelming corner that students were in was this withdrawing corner. And the things that came for prayer was, I'm avoiding authority, I'm avoiding risk. And I prayed with this one young man who said, I have four friendships, my four best friendships. And he said, I'm I'm backing away from all of them. I'm afraid to be vulnerable in them. I'm afraid to take initiative in them. And we just prayed for him to be willing to keep moving into those friendships and taking greater risks, doing more together, uh, being more intentional, but for whatever reason, and I think, I mean, I get it. This is my life too. <laughs> like, it's hard to do that. And sure. a, if you have enough privilege, you can just decide, Oh, I think I just won't do any of that today. 
for me, and th- again, this is one of the reasons I loved playing God so much and why I love this book so much. Uh, when I when I surrendered to a call to ministry, I began a long trajectory of uh, avoiding power, avoiding authority ah. in ministry because yes. I had seen it abused so much. I, the yeah, church that exactly. I grew up split, and and I what I saw was that the the further you get up in the church hierarchy, yep. the more corrupt and yep. the more damage you do. Right, the more corrupt you become, the more damage you do. Yep. And so I would have people ask me all the time when I was a youth pastor, when I was a staff pastor, uh, well, when are you going to be a lead pastor? And I was like, I said, never. I'm never, never. going to be a lead pastor. I don't trust myself, right? These kinds of things are what I would say. Um, I think I tend to be a manipulator, which is one of the cat- – that's where it's uh, you give the appearance of vulnerability, but you're actually wielding authority, right? That's one of the <laughs> – yes. um, and so uh, when the church where I am now, I'm not lead pastor, but I'm co-pastor. Like there are two of us that share the lead pastoral role. So on the, I mean, on the org chart, we're at the top, but we're parallel. Yep. So I'm, I'm more, I mean, I mean, I'm more or less, I mean, and that's, that's where I am in the role. I'm, a, I'm essentially functionally a lead pastor now with my, with my co-pastor, Jonathan. Yep. And, um, it was a, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot for me to get to the place where I could even say I would consider, stepping into that role. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was because I realized that, uh, I mean, I quote Spider-Man all the time, right? But with great, power, <laughs> great responsibility, I realized that like God has gifted and called and equipped me and I need to not shy away from that. Yeah. Uh, that like, that's, that's a responsibility on me. And now like the next step for me is that I'm getting very convicted about how politically active black churches are. Oh, wow. Because they have to be. Right. Like you said, like they can't, like they don't have right. the privilege of living in this withdrawn category. Wow. And I, I talk now, I'm like the unruly white pastor who's in all, I have like, you know, several like Facebook groups that I'm a part of. There are all these pastors and I've, I'm pressing like, hey, we need to be talking about immigration. Hey, we need to be talking yes. about privilege. And people are like, that's not what the pulpit's for. Right. And now what I'm feeling is I think that's exactly what the pulpit's for. Like, if it's not for that, what, like, what are we doing? Uh, And it's it's getting harder and harder for me not to, not to talk about these things and, and be not, not for me to talk about these things, but for us to be a church that talks about these things. Like we, I don't want to be a church that hides in that bottom quadrant and says, let's have this like privatized, spiritualized gospel that doesn't have any connection to the real world. Because again, we have the affluence and the privilege to live down there. Uh, it's it, it's it's getting more and more difficult for me to lead that way, and I think I think I at least partially hold you responsible, um, you know, <laughs> uh, because again I think you're the way you've talked about authority and what that looks like and how it is good has has freed me to step into those roles more more concretely, you know, if that makes wow. sense. Wow. Well, there, there's a vulnerability there for sure, Jr. I like as you know, crew has started pressing into some of these questions. What I what I hear opponents of that saying is, "Hey, could we, you know, we're talking about ethnicity, we're talking about all these other issues. Could we just focus on the thing that matters? Could we just talk about Jesus?" <laughs> uh, which is, you know, in one sense, baffling and infuriating. In another way, I think is exactly what you're talking about, where people are saying, hey, you know, all the things happening in the world, uh, let's just focus on our theology and let, you know, mm-hmm. theopraxy 
be set aside. Like we don't need mm. to act on any of this theology. We just need to know it and sit here and know we all know it. Mm. Uh, which mm. because we have the highest authority, we have the scripture, we have God on our side, which is really fascinating actually. Mm. And I think it is a risk to try to step into very, I mean, you know, very complex realities <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that are happening in real time about which none of us have sufficient information in a sense. I mean, who can really be expert on all that you would need to know? Uh, and, and, and I think there is a place for even a proper humility for church leaders who are, you know, we have not studied criminal justice, let's say. We haven't studied immigration law um, mm -hmm. or the legislative history. Uh, you know, there's a place for a certain kind of modesty. But I, I absolutely think that this is, that's why it's a risk. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you need to take risks. And um, risk is the possibility of loss. And, uh I think about what happened at um, Urbana, uh, the Urbana conference where a speaker was invited to sort of present the case for why Christians need to care about the Black Lives Matter movement. And as yeah. you may know, this, I mean, that was a big risk for the sponsors of that conference to take. And some aspects of it did not go smoothly. And I watched the back and forth and the fallout, and I'm deeply close to many people deeply involved in it. And I just thought, well, that's what you have to do. You have to risk entrusting your stage to someone who may or may not say things that perfectly tick every box that will make your existing constituency feel safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and did um, did everything that happened that evening, would I myself be comfortable with everything that was said and the way it was said? Maybe not. But we have to trust other people, and we have to engage and take a shot at stepping into these very complex things, or else we are, I think, we're not matching our vulnerability with our authority. I, you know, so I think one key idea, and I heard you saying this, JR, is, uh, you know, sometimes we think, well, I just want to retreat from authority. But then you realize the reality is you're given a lot of authority often. And the real challenge is to keep keep your vulnerability up to the level of your authority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as you move up that org chart and move into those more senior positions that you said you feared more and more corruption, well, the way to handle that is actually not to back off from the authority. It's to ramp up the vulnerability and mm -hmm. to say, what do I need to do to, to make sure that continually my exposure to risk is commensurate with my capacity for action. Yeah. And you know, for what I've seen as I've been in this leadership role is that, and I, I'm not, I'm not blowing any minds here. Right. But your, your people that you lead become who you are. And so if I, as a pastor play it safe in the pulpit, right. Yes. And live in that, live in that bottom down and left quadrant, that's yes. where my people will live. And that's what their spirituality will be. Yep. Um, and if I can, if I can move up into the right, what happens is that my people, and if I lead with vulnerability, right? If I don't stand up there and say, well, good news, everyone, I brought you the answer to immigration. Here it is, <laughs> you know, but if, but if I can, if I can lead and say, this is a really difficult issue and we're not going to solve all the problems today, but we're going to answer, to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. That's, yeah. That's probably, you know, but that's if, if I can say, if I can say this is a difficult issue and we're going to try to learn to ask the right questions and we're going to let the scriptures shape our questions. And so here's what the scriptures say about the stranger. 
you know, then, yes. and, and then again, the sermon isn't, the sermon isn't this authoritarian, like, descent from Sinai to end, end all conversation, but it's this, like, breaking open of the community and saying, now let's, let's talk about this. I don't have all the answers, and you don't have all the answers, but together, this, like, we will discern the spirits leading in this. Like, that's what, mm. that's, uh, for, I, and again, I, I think that's a different approach to preaching than some of our more traditional congregations have. Hmm. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's something that fits better with understanding that I am not the Holy spirit and I don't have a monopoly on the Holy spirit mm-hmm. as the preacher. The spirit is active in the life of the church. And my, my role as the gifted and called teacher and preacher is to bring scripture into our conversations and frame, frame the way we ask these questions within the imagination of, of the scripture. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Have you uh, have you heard of Anne Marie Miller, uh, an author, speaker? No, I have not. She has a book called Permission to Speak Freely, where she oh. offers um, it's she calls it the gift of going second. Hmm. And she says when you go first, when you risk and you are vulnerable, it lets other people say, "Wow, me too." Yes. And yes, so completely. by leading with vulnerability, it makes other people able to be vulnerable, and it's difficult, completely. but as a leader with higher, I mean, when you were saying we have to make sure our vulnerability matches our authority, that was immediately what jumped into my mind is for framework. You know, give people the gift of going second. You go first so they can go second. Ah, Wow. I love it. I love it. Really good. So, okay. So I have to ask this then if we're talking about this vulnerability, I like, I turned the page to chapter seven and I was like, I can't believe he's going to the heroine of hell because like <laughs> nobody talks about the heroine of hell. It's like the weird old <laughs> uncle that everyone's embarrassed about at the family reunion. When non-Christians are like, so do you guys believe this? Christians are like, yeah. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and you're just like, all right, here we go. So I love, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. What, like, what is the heroine of hell and why are you talking about it? So the harrowing of hell is the doctrine that's not, I mean, it's not certainly not emphasized, and I don't even know exactly if it's universally held by all Protestant Christians, but uh, certainly Orthodox um, have, they have an icon for it. So in the, in the Orthodox church, big O Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, the way that you do your theology is you have an icon for things. You, you do all your theology through your icons. And they have an icon of the harrowing of hell, which is where Jesus descends to hell. We have this in the Apostles' Creed. In some versions, he descended to hell after uh, he was crucified, died, and was buried. Um, and the the picture, and it's based on a very thin but real scriptural precedent of First Peter that says he, he went and, and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Yeah. And the, the Orthodox churches sort of hooked that all up and said, well, what, what must have happened what this must mean is on Holy Saturday, the day when Jesus is in the tomb, his body is in the tomb, he descends to hell, to the or Sheol, you could say, the lower places where the dead are. And the icon has him grasping Adam and Eve's wrists often <laughs> and pulling them out of their tombs. In other words, he's going back to the very origin and the very individuals who started this whole tragic story and rescuing them from the grave and preaching the good news, even to the spirits in prison. Um, and I use this uh, as a way of talking about the, the most challenging um, assignment for any leader, which, which I'm going to call descending to the dead. And that is this mysterious part of leadership. And it's only part, but it is a real part which is the moments where we have to embrace uh, categorical vulnerability. That is, 
most leadership, as we've been saying, is properly both authority and vulnerability. It, it's the two together, it's up and to the right, but there's, there are moments, and I think they're decisive moments in the lives of communities, even families, uh, and all the way up to nations, where a leader has to decide essentially to embrace sacrifice. And sacrifice is the emptying yourself of authority, the opening yourself up to radical vulnerability, even unto death. Um, and that's part of in the, the, mis, the mystery of the redemptive story of God. Part of actually bringing flourishing to the world is a willingness to go to the place where, as far as we have known, except for one example, no one returns. And that's the real deep, dark complex reality of leadership, I think, is knowing when is the time to empty myself in that way. So you pull uh, Ronald, is it Heifetz from yeah. Harvard? Yeah. Uh, he says the primary job of the leadership is to avoid assassination, but you say <laughs> leaders only get to be assassinated once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so choose your assassination moment carefully as much as you can. Uh, you know, Heifetz has an, it's a useful insight. He says the first job of the leader is not to be assassinated because communities assassinate leaders when the leaders ask too much of them, basically. Ask them to risk too much too fast. It generates such anxiety in the, in the system that the, the uh, sort of solution in a way is to expel the person calling for that level of risk. And, and Heifetz's point is, you know, if you get thrown out of the system, you're of no further use. So your first job is to sort of modulate the amount of risk you're ask, asking your community to take so they don't eject you. So that's fine as far as it goes. But the problem is we have a word for a leader who spends all of his time, it usually is his time, um, <laughs> avoiding assassination, and that's a dictator. Like, that's someone who will do anything to stay in power. And that can't be the Christian model. So instead, what I say in the book is, you know, to, I modify it. I say, well, just choose your moment. Like, what is it, what, and discern your moment. When is it that there's going to be, have to be this radical giving? Because that is what, that's what Jesus or the sec, you know, the son, that is the story of the son who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself even to death. And there's something about when leaders do that. It, I think the reason we have to do it is it, it breaks the power of idolatry um, and injustice, which are predicated on the idea that we need to somehow insulate ourselves from risk and vulnerability. But when a leader will actually completely empty themselves and be completely vulnerable, even to the point of literal assassination, by the mysterious providence and power of God, that actually ends up undermining the demonic forces that tell us that we don't dare to be vulnerable, uh, if there is, in fact, rescue on the other side of that. But for us, that's what resurrection is. There is rescue. So what does it look like for a leader to pursue this kind of, I mean, you know, I, yeah. how do you know? How do you know when it's your time, when, when it's right? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think about, uh, I mean, one example of this, and, and I think it's a good example because it's not, in one sense, it's not very dramatic, but it's so unique <laughs> in the context is uh, Nelson Mandela was elected president of South Africa after the end of apartheid. And one way that Nelson Mandela did this, very powerful way, is he decided not to run for re-election. 
Now, he was Tata Mandela. He was the nation's father. He was universally beloved and respected, and rightly so. I mean, on the whole, an extraordinary leader. But he decides to give up his presidential power so that it will break the power of the system, which is endemic in many places, uh, but is, is endemic in much of sub-Saharan Africa, where a big man, and those words are capitalized, the big man takes control, holds on to control until the end of his life. So we see this with Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. We see it with Museveni in Uganda right now. Museveni is arresting his opponents, you know, uh, in, in this, what is it, like the 17th election or whatever, mm -hmm. because you can't give up power. But that actually creates this incredibly distorted system that relies on violence and intimidation. And Mandela said, I am not going to, I'm going to create a system where there's a peaceful transition of power where you don't have, you don't have to literally assassinate the leader for power to be handed over. That was a kind of dying. I mean, and it, he didn't have to do it. The nation would have by almost by acclamation, you know, reelected him, but he's, he emptied himself. So I would say, ideally you look, you, you are open to the possibility that the best thing for the system will be your emptying yourself. I, so it isn't always literal death. It isn't always even completely giving up your role, but it is like, would this make a decisive difference and change the system if I were willing to just be completely open to risk here? Yeah, I think I think there's something about like looking at it in terms of power that's really helpful. Like, how can I? And I mean, again, you frame it that way, right? Sometimes, in order for everyone to go up and to the right. Yeah. Leaders have to go down into the exactly. left. Exactly. Um, you have yeah. to empty yourself of power. You have to, you know, uh, you have to move that direction. Um, I, you know, we're talking a lot about privilege in my congregation right now, and we're going to be continuing to do that. And one of the things, because our congregation is primarily white, one of the things I'm trying to explain to people is when when we talk about privilege in a largely white context, it feels like white people are losing something. Uh -huh. And, and so, so emotionally you're experiencing loss and you're experiencing fear, even though what's happening is everything is becoming more just and more equitable. It doesn't feel like that for the people at the top. And yes. so we have to address those emotional reactions because if those are allowed to rule the day, then nothing's going to happen. You know, it doesn't matter how rationally we present things or how much sense it makes on paper. If, if those strong emotions are what rule us, then, then things are going to explode. You know, completely. And I think there's really two things maybe that are going on. And one is a fear of loss of authority. Like we, we are so used to being able to act, but, um, but some of that is, I mean, some of that is founded on injustice. It's sort of because other people are unable to act, I'm able to act and not all of it, but some. And so, but then the other thing is a fear of risk. If I open myself up in this way, what, what am I putting at risk? And, as long as your calculation is what's going to be best for me, you'll never give up an ounce of privilege. <laughs> but if the calculation becomes what's best for us uh, and what's best for the vulnerable in my community, very often for the vulnerable to flourish, I have to be willing to empty myself. And, you know, that can be as simple as I just stay silent when it, when it would be normal for me to speak up or to have the floor. And I wait and make some room. Uh, I think so much of good leadership is knowing when's the right time to make some room uh, for, for other people. And, and that requires me to just be still 
<laughs> which turns out to be a really vulnerable thing for someone who's used to privilege and power to do. <laughs> um, I, I want to say both of you guys in my life, I feel like have modeled this idea of giving away authority uh, and increasing vulnerability. JR, I see it all the time in your church, the way that you share your platform, uh, the fact that you are training people in your congregation to preach and giving that piece of authority over is pretty spectacular. Because I know so many churches where, like I literally know a church where a pastor has preached every week <laughs> until he had to have throat surgery. <laughs> and then he planned his throat surgery to miss the minimum number of weeks and and he had to handpick the person who was going to preach and write their sermon, you know. So uh, it, there's that extreme, and then I feel like Jared, you've done the opposite. You're like taking every person in your congregation who has some indication that the Lord is able and and willing to speak through them, and you're training them and helping them speak, and that's amazing. It's incredible. It's it's actually I don't know why it's so uncommon, but it, it's really uncommon, and um. I, I don't know if you're comfortable with this, um, but I'm just going to share anyway, Andy, that... <laughs> <laughs> How can I stop you? I, say, yeah, you can't. I mean, it is pre-recorded, I guess. Uh, you know, I asked Andy to come speak at a big conference last summer, and Andy agreed, and I was asking him to speak on some of these sorts of topics, and he agreed to come on the condition that I would consider also bringing a friend of his who is talented, incredible, woman, uh, uh, but who didn't have as much of a platform, and he felt for him to do what he was being asked, he needed to bring her in so that she also had a voice in the conversation, which was spectacular. It was so good. And it did bring both of those examples are things that in their context brought flourishing. Uh, mm -hmm. And for me, as someone watching that example, it brings flourishing in my life as well. So thank you to both of you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's such yeah. a good example that Actually, you don't give anything that really matters up when you do that. Like, I had so much better a time just personally, and I learned and grew and enjoyed myself so much more, honestly, candidly, mm -hmm. because Nikki, who who we invited alongside me to speak, was there. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and my part went so much better. So this imagination we have that we have to hold on to power is so misleading. Like, it's actually... Everybody gets to flourish in the long run, and yeah. and and we trust that in the providence of God, even if there is literal abandonment and sacrifice unto death, that on the other side of resurrection, we're all going to say that was the best thing I ever did. The martyrs are going to be the people closest to Jesus; they're the people we're all going to be wanting to stand in stand in line to give them a hug. Like their sacrifice in the bigger picture will be nothing but beauty and flourishing for them as well as for uh, the world that they give testimony to. So we just have to allow ourselves to be converted away from our, our fear, really. Yeah, that that is a great thought for us to close the interview on. I think Andy, well said. It's beautiful. Uh, can you tell us where, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with you, where they can find you online, where they can connect? And then we're going to do a giveaway as well, which you can find at storymen.us, where uh, you can get a copy of this book uh, when you sign in for the giveaway. So yeah. go ahead, Andy. Where can we find you online? AndyCrouch.com with a dash between the two names. So Andy-C-R-O-U-C-H.com. Uh, yeah, that's the place. It's not very 
exciting. It's pretty simple, but uh, I mean, it has all my contact MySpace? info. Do you have MySpace? Oh, well, uh, no. MySpace? <laughs> Does that even... <laughs> Still exists. Wasn't just it just kidding. bought for like two million dollars? <laughs> two million? They paid two million for it? Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> compared to, you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, I'm on Twitter too. AHC. AHC. Awesome. Uh, the book is strong and weak. And again, I have to say, Andy does such a good job in this book. It's so clear. Uh, there's so much of the, the biblical narrative is woven all throughout it. So it really frames this whole conversation so clearly for people of faith. Uh, it's just, a, it's a tremendous, tremendous work. It, it doesn't actually come out until March 11th. Uh, uh, so it'll be out sooner. It'll it's be out in the sooner. Okay. It's making its way to Amazon's massive warehouses, but okay. it'll be out a little sooner than that. Well, you can get it as soon as, like, get it as soon as you can. You will not be sorry you read. And he, this is sort of a throwaway line earlier, but it is under 200 pages. It is a short. Uh, it's not a quick read because about every three pages you got to sit it down and think for a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it's it's really really good. Uh, fantastic book. So again, Andy, thanks for coming on. We promise we will have you back on before your next book comes out. <laughs> All right, I'll hold you to it. This, this has been the Storyman podcast. Uh, find the giveaway and everything at storyman.us or facebook.com slash the Storyman. Reach out to Andy. Let him know you enjoyed having him on the show and let him know what you think of the book. We will be back soon with another great episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening.